Thank you, brother. Well, good morning, everyone. You'll notice I'm going to take a lot of drinks. Uh, I don't know if it's allergies or I'm in the beginning stages of a cold of some sorts, but uh, I'm going to persevere as we should, according to this text. Uh, but uh, I, sh- I will be stopping periodically for drinks, so bear with me. Um, man, so everyone here has more than likely been to a buffet before, right? I guess not a foreign concept. If you haven't, by some stretch of the imagination, or maybe for the kiddos listening in, a buffet, if you haven't been to it, um, is maybe there's a little more familiar term to you, which is, uh, since we're, we're, we're Baptists, it, a buffet is essentially like a, a bigger potluck, right? A bunch of people grab a bunch of things, and they all put them on the table together, Right? You know this sort of dinner. There's many things in front of you, and you get to go along, and you get to pick and choose what you put on your plate. That's essentially the pro of having a buffet style, either restaurant or dinner. Uh, and it's it's good for that reason. You only get on your plate what you really want to be there. Restaurants in the uh, mid uh, mid 1900s uh, through the remainder of that uh, of that century really modeled themselves well at, uh, after what seemed like a Baptist practice. First, I mean, Pollux are originally Baptist, but they sort of implemented a lot of that in their business practices, thinking this would be a better to really charge a higher entry fee, maybe, to get in, and then now to to give the customer bukus of whatever they want to eat. They get to, to eat as much of whatever they want as they possibly can, just for a little bit higher fee than they would pay for that same, like maybe one of those dinners at another restaurant. And so this did well for a while, but restaurants like Golden Corral, Poncho's, Luby's, Sizzler's, those started to die off in the 90s and the early 2000s because people were just less apt to go there. Um, Regardless of how well or not well they may have done, their whole premise was fundamentally built around a customer getting what they want only and disregarding everything else. And that's really what you could do when you went into these restaurants or when you go into a potluck or when you go into a buffet-style dinner, you get to pick and choose what sort of things get on your plate. You could eat a wide variety of food and consume everything in there, at least a little bit. You could eat 10 plates of the same thing, which uh, I feel like a lot of people have been guilty of. Or you could just eat dessert. You could just go in there for dessert, and that would be perfectly fine, too. There was an awesome uh, buffet-style restaurant called Ryan's in the town just north of the town I grew up in. That was like a thing me and my family went to do. We would always go to Ryan's, and I was always trying to just blow through the main course so I could get to their incredible dessert display that they would have in there. Well, brothers and sisters, honestly, we operate much the same way at times as when we engage with God's word as we do when we go to a buffet. We pick and choose what Bible texts we want to read. We pick and choose what doctrines we want to let consume our life, what preachers we listen to, what books we read, if we choose to read at all. We kind of just get to pick and choose what we want, especially today, now more than ever. Ironically, I'm going to quote a sermon from a guy who I love that I listen to who's way far off and not in this town. But Alistair Begg calls these people sermon tasters. He says they're like gourmet theologians. They pay the price of admission and become experts at only sort of what they want to be experts in. They they only put on their plate that which really concerns them. They only listen to certain people. They read certain authors. They they talk about certain doctrines and they let those doctrines lead them to only certain practices. So my question on the outset of the sermon is, are we going to let this passage today make its way onto our plate? Are, are we going to walk up to this and, and pass it by, or are we going to put it on our plate and let it 
attempt to consume it and ultimately let it consume us? Are we going to hear the word of God this morning and want to consume it and let it fuel us for whatever we may face? Are we sermon-proof? Are we Bible-hardened? Are we able to really walk up to this glorious display of a text and then move on and consider ourselves not affected by it? Beloved, in preparing to present this text to us this morning, I fear that this may be one of the areas that you and I are prone to. We're prone to let it pass us by. We're prone to walk by and not put it on the plate. Let us together reject that notion and consume what God would have us consume this morning. What James is telling us, ultimately what God himself is telling us. So as I put this sermon together, um, I felt compelled to change the sermon title, which rarely happens. Um, But though Hole in Our Holiness that is printed on your sermon card would have been an absolutely appropriate title for the purposes of maybe organizing our thoughts a little bit around my two central points, I really wanted to point us to two portraits of polarities, right? Portraits of polarities. I'm still Baptist, so I got to alliterate at least a little bit. Portraits of polarities. So a portrait is a painting of a person, right? A detailed painting of a person. And polarity, two things that have poles or opposites, right? Polarity portraits, two opposites that James is really painting for us this morning. He considers two opposite types of people that he considers opposite. We might not see it that way, but he is putting them in a polarizing fashion before us today. These two people, as we will observe in, uh, in our text this morning, is going to be, uh, for the purposes of this sermon, going to serve as our outline. So the first person that we're going to focus on is a God-focused doer. It's going to be a God-focused doer. Number two is going to be a God-forgetting hearer. A God-forgetting hearer. Okay, so as we dive into this text, let us together put off the notion that we can just pass by whatever we we want and really engage with how much this is going to challenge us as we digest and walk out and be indeed a doer of this text. So look with me as we dive into verses 19 through 21. So first, by all accounts, the first part of 19 should justly go with the passage before it. It's really a bookend to what he's talking about, mainly in 16 through 18, the first half, where he says, know this, my beloved brothers. is not really He's not really opening up an entirely new argument. He's actually concluding a really succinct thought in verses 16 through 18, especially 18 when it says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first, few, first fruits of his creatures. This is what James is really wanting to double down when he says, know this, my brothers, know that. Know that by his own will, he brought us forth with the word of truth and know that we are meant to be first fruits of his creatures. He wants to double down on the truth that God brought us forth by his own will. And because of this, we should be the first fruits of his creatures. Now, this Conclusion is meant as a point of emphasis because James is, if he is nothing else, he is indeed a preacher. He is indeed a preacher. I don't know what just happened there. He is a preacher. And so he will give illustrious language to describe a point he's trying to make. And he will also continue to double down with things like, know this, my brothers, do this, walk this, live this. Those sorts of things are going to be because he's trying to emphasize a point. So then being then the first fruits of God's creatures and having been given the word of truth, we must now look and live a certain way that comes with consequences that comes with what do we do now as a result? James 
often does this where he'll sort of present a theological point and then he'll tell us, now live this, right? He'll bring up doctrine and then put it into practice. And that's kind of what he's doing here. He's kind of unfolding things for us in a way that is applicable and followable and something that we should really model our lives by. He gives an exhortation to those who have been given the word of truth, to those beloved brothers, to the Christian readers. Don't forget whom James is writing to, right? This is to the brethren. This is to the beloved. This is to the church. He is writing to Christians, saying these sorts of things about those of them and those around them. So he begins his exhortation with a basic Christian understanding, or it should be at least. Maybe it's not often. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is a threefold imperative. He is commanding us to be these three things here. The word of God through this is commanding us to be these three things. It's a threefold imperative that James decisively tells us about the character of God and the nature of man. How does he do that? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. One, we should be, man should be quick to hear. Those who are in Christ should have a natural inclination towards humility when approaching God's word. Because this is the God of the cosmos that has created everything that is now communicating glorious, life-altering truths to you and to me and to them, the the original readers of this text. So James is is saying here, be slow to speak. This isn't just a a lesson in self-control and self-restraint in regards to being angry or in regards to lashing out in violence. This is a, a, a blanket term that he's, he's using for all of us to be, sl- to be quick to hear, quick in humility to understand and listen to the, uh, the word that God has for us. Christians, people that are found in Christ, are constant learners, and they learn in humility. As James points out in chapter 4, verse 6, he understands and communicates that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He is encouraging us to have a constant, humble approach when we come to the scriptures. And that that approach should be a humble heart cry for God's wisdom and his effectual grace in our lives. That's why we come time and time and time again to the scriptures. It's to know God better so that his grace might better affect the way that we, we live and glorify and praise his name. That is why we come to the scriptures. That requires humility to say, it is not about me, it is about the one who is speaking. So be quick to hear. No. Number two, be slow to speak. It is God who is the greatest teacher of his word. We should be slow to teach and to speak on which we are not the author of. And this bears, and I think even James has in mind here his own self, this bears especially heavy on those who, who have the burden, the gift, and the glorious task in front of them, though trembling their hands may be, of preaching the word of God and teaching the word of God to others. We should be slow to speak. It is God who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It is God who is the greatest teacher of his word. We should be slow to teach on that which we are not the author of. We are fallible. We are filled with error. We are still affected by the present reality of sin. Even though that he's writing to Christians who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, we are still engaging with the present reality of sin. So we must be slow to speak. We're not meant to never speak, though. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say just sit and be quiet and say nothing, but simply be slow to do so. Have a humble approach to when you're to speak. We must be slow to speak if we're to hear the word of God correctly, right? If we're to hear and learn first before we tell other people, we must be slow to cry out in response. One commentator uh, says that great, the great talker is rarely a great listener, 
And never is the ear more firmly closed than when anger takes over, which kind of leads us into the third imperative there. Be slow to anger. Anger is defined in the book Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones, which is a fantastic read. I recommend it to you all. But he defines anger as this, a whole person active response of negative moral judgment on a perceived evil. Now, I know that's a lot of, that's a lot, a lot of words for something that some of us really understand really well in anger, right? Like, we get anger. Like, I know it when I see it. I know it when, it, when I feel it inside of me. But to put it in these words, I think, puts perspective on what we're actually doing here. Like, it is a whole person with all of us response of negative, in a negative fashion that is unrighteous and unbiblical against a perceived evil. Against something that we think is wrong, whether we're, we're right about that perception or not. That is what anger is. And yes, don't hear me wrong. There is absolutely righteous anger. But I think we should really tread lightly. I think James is even saying here, tread lightly when saying that your anger is righteous. When counting ourselves as self-controlled enough to use anger for a good purpose. Righteous anger reacts against sin. It focuses on God and his kingdom not on me and my rights or my concerns or my priorities. It is not separated from other godly qualities that Christ calls us to walk in. So righteous anger, does it exist? Yes. Should we be real slow to say that we are exemplifying what that is? Absolutely, we should be slow to do this. So heed the warning of James, be slow. Jesus himself was only recorded a handful of times as being angry. How much more should we show restraint if the master of the house does so as well? So we, we must be slow to become angry. Why? Because the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Worldly, fleshly, human anger does not promote the righteousness of God in a person or in a culture or in the world. It doesn't do that. All it does is promote pride and, and diminishes humility. Only God's anger promotes and produces the righteousness of God. God is perfect in his wrath and in his anger and in his justice. You are not, my friends. I am not. Therefore, be cautious when claiming your anger to be righteous and be quick to repent when you know for certain that your anger is not because this indeed does not produce the righteousness of God. So in summary of this sort of threefold imperative, be quick to, he to hear from God who speaks, be slow to speak <coughs> of that which you do not know and are not the author of and be slow to anger as if everything be slow to anger as if everything you actually perceive to be wrong is in fact wrong understand that your perceptions are limited God's perception is not right God knows truly what is and is not so be slow be slow be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to grow angry so this is who uh, uh, we're meant to be as our natural inclinations when the implanted word of truth, the word of truth that brings us forth by the will of God makes its way into our hearts. This should be what it's transforming us into. This is what a doer of the word looks like. What then do those people of God actually do? What do the doers actually do? Well, let's look at verse uh, 21. They put off and they put on. They put off filthiness and rampant wickedness. James calls us to put away the stains of the old man, the natural man, the man that we are in our own sin, and put on the implanted word. He says, put away filthy and rampant wickedness. The phrase here is meant to communicate like filthy garments that haven't been washed in months. 
that these people were walking around it. He said, take these things off. It's similar to the taking off of a garment. Remember, he's speaking to Christians here. This isn't like take off the, the, the garment of unrighteousness, repent of your sins and be baptized so that you can see Christ. He's talking to Christians, right? And he's still saying yet, yeah, take off, continue, put off unrighteousness, put off rampant wickedness, put off the filthiness that is your sin before God. James is urging them to keep with repentance and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Continue to put off those things that are antithetical to the gospel. They must not fail to take the implanted word, planted deep so that it shapes, fashions them into the image of Christ, thereby continuing to remove the filthiness and rampant wickedness. One commentator whose name is RVG Tasker, uh, you know you got to be like really either full of yourself or a baller to have three three uh, letters at the beginning of what everyone calls you, right? J.R.R. Tolkien, RVG Tasker. So Tasker, he, he puts it this way. He, he says almost these sins that are still left over, this filthiness and rampant wickedness that James is calling us to sort of remove and put off, even though he's talking to Christians, he says this is almost like the hangover of, of previous pagan habits, he, he says it's almost as if the grace of God, but by the grace of God alone, we've stopped getting drunk on our own wickedness. We've stopped drinking down the wrath of God to the dregs. We've, st- we've stopped pouring out wrath and condemnation on ourselves. And finally, we have, in fact, kicked the habit and, and found rest in Jesus. And yet there are definite consequences to the life that we led, Right? Like, even though Christ is redeemed, there are definite consequences that now we are going to have to continue to walk in and putting off of Christ. It's not saved and then you do nothing. It is saved and then you walk and walk and walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ, continuing to put off the garment of unrighteousness and filthiness and rampant wickedness. We must deal with the old man in a way we are able And the only way we're able by receiving with meekness, with humility, with lowliness, the implanted word of God. This implanted word is the same word, uh, the same implanted word in Ephesians 1.13 that says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul tells us elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, In verse 1 and 2, that this word, the word that is able to save our souls, as our text says, is in fact the word of the gospel. It is the gospel alone that saves a person from their sin and empowers them to continually remove off the garment of filthiness and rampant wickedness. See, guys, it is the gospel alone. It is the message of God and his holiness, the, about man and his sinfulness and his fallenness, the person and the work, completed work of Christ, his resurrection, and the summons, the summons to repentance that he ushers forth for all of mankind to turn from their sin and repent and be baptized for the remission of, the, of their sin. It is this gospel that will enable us to continue to, to put off. God has, if we are saved by it, if we repent and we, are, and we are found to be in Christ, God has implanted this gospel word into our lives. And it is, in fact, the gospel that, that saves us. It is the message in the story of God as creator, man as sinner, Christ as redeemer, and now a response given to all. That is what saves. Not the putting off of filthy, rampant wickedness. 
It is the implanted word that is able to save our souls. It is the gospel word that is able to save, and it is the gospel alone that saves. And this gospel makes us into doers. If these truths are not declared, then no matter what else might have been been preached, we're not able to take off and put off the rampant wickedness if not for the gospel itself. A God-focused doer is constantly reminded of the gospel. Charles Hodges wants... I'm sorry, Charles Hodge, uh, singular. Charles Hodge once said the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it. And yet so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. That's the gospel. That's what's going to enable us by the implanted word that has saved our souls to put off rampant wickedness and filthiness. This is a gift of grace that has been given to us, that Christ has died for sinners, that you and I have received the implanted word of God if we be in Christ. This is good news. The implanted word does not come as a result of diligent study or proper intellectual investigation, but by a great divine Lord engrafting us with his word of life. This word is able to save. Christ the Savior saves by his word, by his deeds. He has done this which reminds us of verse 18 of our previous passage, right? That by his own will, he brought us forth. We didn't come forth, but he brought us forth by the word of truth. There is no ethical and moral consequences. I'm sorry, there are ethical and moral consequences to receiving this implanted word that has saved our souls. It necessitates a type of behavior, James is calling them to action by reminding them that this implanted word will lead to this, putting off of filthiness and rampant wickedness. What does this mean? We will not, or at least should not, look the same as we did when we snuggled up in our garment of filthiness next to our old pagan habits. That man should look differently than the man now that we continue to walk forward and put off unrighteousness. The implanted word that is able to save you necessitates that we do so. What does this mean for us theologically uh, when we think about man in an anthropological way and then practically? What, What does this really mean? Three really quick statements. Theologically, it is the same grace that saves you that will sanctify you. It must sanctify you. The grace that saves also sanctifies. Anthropologically, or sort of a study of man, what does this teach us about man? We as fallen people will continue to be sanctified until we are with Christ, whether through death or his returning. We will continue to be sanctified. We will progressively become more and more and more like, like Christ. Practically, our sanctification deserves our highest desire, devotion, and diligence. It is, our, it is in our practice that our sanctification is most obviously seen in how we live, right? It's not, our sanctification isn't primarily seen in how much we know or how much we study or how much we read. It is most often and most clearly seen in how we live and what we do and who we choose to live for. 
James draws a straight line from the implanted word to the results of that implantation, a godly and sanctified life. Calvin says it this way. He says, doctrine must be transformed, I'm sorry, transfused into the breast and passed into conduct. And so transform us as not to prove unfruitful. Remember, if we're meant to be the first fruits of his creatures, if we're continue, continuing to meant to be fruit, fruitful, the word must pass beyond our head and go into our heart and pass into our conduct. That is how the word does it. Our walk with Christ is not something that is segmented from the rest of our lives. It is an all-consuming, all of Christ for all of life mentality that is a walk with Jesus. It's not something that can be segregated or segmented off to the side in some sort of quiet time or daily devotion or we go and we live however else we want to. The implanted word that has saved our souls enables us and demands that we continue to put off unrighteousness and filthy wickedness. Now, uh, just as when Jesus explains the parable of sower in Mark 4.20, there was no seed of an implanted word that goes into the prepared heart of the soil that does not lead to salvation and repentance. If it goes into the, the proper soil prepared by the Holy Spirit, it will bear fruit. And it cannot be snatched away by the heat, by the crows, by the thorns and thistles. It will remain and it will persevere. Thus, the implanted word is able to save our souls. And it calls us to live a certain way. Putting off the garment of filthiness and the results that it shows in our daily life is evidence of a saved soul. It makes salvation tangibly seen in a person. You know this, brothers and sisters. You can see sanctification and salvation in a, in a person of God when they smile at an enemy who is mocking them and greets them with a, a, a gentle word. You can hear it in the way they correct their children in gentleness and not provoking them to anger. You can touch their salvation and their sanctification when even in grief they're offering up a warm handshake or an embrace. You taste it in the food prepared at their dinner tables and hopes to be hospitable as God calls us to. You see the effects of their sanctification in, in their, their life. Sanctification makes our salvation tangible. All of this so far is what doers do. This is what doer is. This is who they are at their core. And this leads them to only one place they can go for answers because if they're putting off of the filthiness of the world, where, where else are they going to turn to to put on the righteousness of Christ? Well, they need the word. They need the perfect law, the law of liberty. Skip down with me now to verse 25 as we uh, uh, take an example of what a doer is. A doer of the word finds a wonderful companion in the holy word of God. A doer finds a wonderful companion in God's word. James says that those who do the word are those who peer into it. They look long and they look deep into the innermost parts of it to find the source of its unending hidden treasures. There are treasures that will never be found this side of glory that are found in God's word, that are waiting, sitting there. And those who are doers of the word, they peer into it. They're focused on who God is in his character and they want to peer into the perfect law, the law of liberty, so that they might glean from it the truths about God. They find the law of liberty and they consume it. They're not averse to it. They don't have an allergy to the word of God. They bend their lives to it. And they do not use it to justify their own fleshly desires. 
they bend their will to it. They submit to its authority, not disregard its commands for the sake of comfort. And what comes as a result of this sort of companionship to the law? James says blessings. James, he tells us that this doer who gazes into the perfect law will be blessed in his doing. Quite literally, he is saying the doer of the word will be, will, uh, sorry, the doing of the word will bless us to continue to walk in the doing of the word. It's a perpetual cycle as just as much sin is a perpetual cycle that he's talked about already. So he is peering in and gazing into the word of God. It will bless us in our doing of it. James then gives a bit of insight into the outward expression that this peering into, that this putting off and this putting on of the, the, the word of God and, uh, uh, and putting off of unrighteousness, putting on righteousness. He gives us a little bit of an insight into the outward expressions of what that may look like. So continue to skip down to verse 27. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In verse 26, he describes what it means to have a religion that is worthless and defiled. But here in verse 27, he contrasts that with what he calls true religion, what he calls religion that is based on something and that is, worth, that is worthy in the eyes of God. Religion in and of itself is not a bad thing. Religion is not some icky word that those who use it are just sort of out of touch with modern reality and are out of touch with the type of Jesus we want to portray to the culture. Religion is good. True religion is worthy to be presented to God. The word for religion here in this text is threskea. Threskea, meaning also in other places, worship. Or more specifically, ordered, regular often worship. We all worship something. If we're, uh, it's how we're designed. It's, worship is our default setting. We will commit our worship somewhere, if not to God himself. We must then choose where our worship will be directed and anywhere else other than God, James told us in 26, which we're going to talk about in a moment, is worthless. Anywhere else other than God, it is worthless. But true worship, true religion is a good thing. One commentator states it, this way, that religion is the external expression of internal worship or internal adoration. This is why I get so exhausted by people that constantly say it's not a religion. Or, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Like following Christ isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Like is our inter interaction with God relational? You bet, absolutely. God saves us as a personal savior, absolutely. Then he grafts us into a people. Now how do people, a group of people, with an individual personal savior, how do they worship him? Well, they order themselves. Our worship of God, our interaction with God, yes, it's relational, but it also better be regular. It better be routine. And in fact, it better be religious. What does religion do though? What's the, the, uh, the product from religion? It cares for, for those that have no one to care for them. And it seeks to walk in holy reverence to God. Why do I say that? Well, look at our text at the, the, the very end of our, our passage. He, he gives us two things that we can point to. And these aren't 
all-encompassing. James is not trying to be so robust as everything in the scriptures can be boiled down to the worship of God in these two things. He's, he's, he's making statements that really apply to more of, of his people than it does to the broadest sense of all of the scripture. He's not trying to make definitive, robust, comprehensive statements. He's telling us elements of what our worship should lead us to and what it should look like. First, true religion is to visit the orphans and the widows. Both of these groups are some of the most vulnerable, vulnerable groups on the planet. Groups that deserve our love, our support, our care. The orphans and the widows are talked about over and over and over in the Bible. God cares for these groups, even when it seems like cultures, entire societies disregard them. Widows are often overlooked and dismissed outright in nearly every society, though not by God. He tells his people to intentionally serve and love these women. God puts laws and Christian principles into place for the church, the church to take care of those who have lost those that they love that are closest to them. And that's because he's a good father who takes care of his children. Orphans have it even worse. Orphans, our culture would rather kill a baby in the womb for free before it has the opportunity to be an orphan than make orphans or the adoption of orphans even remotely affordable. So God cares for these two groups, even when it seems like culture or the world does not. And James is saying, the care of these groups, it should exemplify true religion, should exemplify godly practice, should exemplify a doer of the word. He also says true religion is to keep one unstained from the world. Unstained from the world. Now let me be real clear here. This is not a proof text, so we can just grab any sort of fundamentalist ideologies we want about reclusing from society like some sort of Cenobite, right? That's not what, that's not what this verse is saying, We've been studying biblical theology, yes? We know that we have to take the whole counsel of God when we're making and contributing ourselves to and putting ourselves to the formation of a doctrine. We have to consider the whole counsel of God and not just pluck verses potentially out of context. So let's consider what the whole counsel of God says and not, not just this, but that's a sermon for another day. What he's getting at here, this is almost the reverse of the term that he used earlier for filthiness. It says, put off filthiness. And here he's saying, keep yourself unstained or clean in comparison to the world. Remember, brothers and sisters, we've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We were talking this morning to our kids that the, the waters of baptism do nothing for us. It is the blood, blood of Jesus that cleanses us of our sins. Remember that filthy garment of rampant wickedness that we're meant to put off as doers of the word that has been replaced by a garment of imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And brother, there is nothing that will tarnish that thing. That, stands, that will allow you to stand blameless and innocent before God. So then walk in a manner worthy of that righteousness. That's what he's saying here. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Don't look like the world does. Look like Christ does. That's what he's saying here. If we are doers of the word and seeking the joy that is found in the glory of God, there is nothing that can snatch us from his hands. Romans 8 tells us this really clearly. That there's nothing in all of creation that can pluck us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no stain that cannot be washed clean by his blood. That has already been washed clean by those who are found in him. Therefore, 
And we must not fear the world, brothers and sisters, but we are to look different from the world. What this verse is calling us to is exactly that, an endless and joyful pursuit of holiness in light of the victory over sin that's found in the person of Jesus. He is calling us to cling to Christ. James is calling us to cling to Christ, not to the world. So the world is going to fail you. Christ will not. Cling there. Keep yourself unstained from the world and cling to Christ. The truth is that we must be found to be doers of the word that lead to this sort of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the portrait of a doer of the word. This is the image of the one who has submitted themselves to Christ, acknowledged their lowliness, peered deep into the word of God, the law of liberty, and seeks to bless others by serving and uh, to bless others by serving and to bless God by living a life that is godly and dignified in every way. That is the doer. That's the portrait James is presenting here. The question I want to ask at this point is, does that describe you? And before you answer, remember to be slow to speak. Remember humility. Consider for just a moment that this may be perhaps an area of oversight for you. Considering humility that maybe this first portrait doesn't quite look like you. Right? It looks like someone else that you hope to be, but it doesn't maybe quite look like you. What now? What will you do? What will you do with this reality that maybe this isn't describing you? Cling to Christ, trust his word, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, put off rampant wickedness and filthiness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, maybe I have described you or at least a large part of you. This is a hopeful part of you that longs to walk with Christ and you are pursuing it to that end. If you are this person, this doer, let's get around one another and let's do this together. You are not meant to do this alone. The reason the church exists is to glorify God, to serve him by loving others, and and to allow a space for believers to come together and fulfill the commands of Christ with one another, for one another, in honor and service to him. So James properly paints a portrait of a God-focused hero, but he also paints another portrait, one of a God-forgetting hearer. Now, uh, uh, James, oddly enough, has a lot less to say about this guy, so the second point will be fairly shorter. So a God-forgetting hearer. Let's look at, let's go back up now to verses 22 through 24. So in verse 22, uh, it says this, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James now begins his portrait of a hearer of the word, a hearer only. Uh, He begins it by admonishing us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, I'm... I'm no painter. <laughs> I'm no sort of physical artist. I'm more of a musician, and that's great. Uh, physical arts elude me, right? I can't draw, I can't paint, can't sculpt, can't do any of that stuff. But what I do know about painting through other people that I get to read who are experts on this, your first strokes of the brush are vitally important. The first things you do are kind of going to set the tone for the rest of what you do. It's going to set a, a sort of a method and pattern that you're going to follow for the, the rest of the, the painting, the rest of the portrait. So your early brush strokes determine in a large, port, a large way uh, what shape your portrait is going to take. We must ask ourselves you know, at the outset of this, really, and, and this verse is 
by, by all indications, the crux of the text. This is where we are finding ourselves planted is this one right here. This is the, the, the precipice that we could either go one way or we could go another. We must ask ourselves, why does he start here? Seems like an obvious elementary point. We must not be hearers only. So why is he asking this? All of the problems that we see in those who profess Christ can be summed up in this one verse. All the problems that we see in the church and all the things that have plagued Christians and churches and us as people attempting to follow God but falling back into our own old sinful patterns, it can be summed up here. Hypocrisy, manipulation, superficial professing Christians, abuse, false teaching, moral failure, all of these things have plagued the church from her inception and all of this is a result of somewhere, someone somewhere down the line being a hearer only of the word and not a doer. This is the main point of the message of James in our text this morning. He is urging us, pleading with us to continue in living out the word and not being content by just sitting and hearing what's being preached to us, not just the hearing of it. As a pastor of a church in Jerusalem uh, and a leader of the, elder, of, of the early church, <clears throat> James clearly endorses a person that would sit under the teaching of, of God's word. He's not saying don't do that, right? Don't be a hearer. He's saying don't be a hearer only. How else would we, uh, how else would we have faith if uh, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? We need to sit. We need to hear. We need to take in what God is saying. But he does warn us against being hearers only. By only sitting taking in and then walking out those doors and being 0% affected by it. That's what he is warning us from. He warns against those who sit in synagogues and churches and lecture halls listening to the law and the gospel and leaving completely unchanged. He warns against those who have allowed their own apathy to make them sermon-proof, to make them word-hardened and able to hear but not to understand. Not to understand in a way that leads them to godly living and living a godly and dignified life. These people that he's describing admire the word. They may even talk about it with one another. They profess that they believe in it, yet they do not obey that which they profess to love. Indeed, they love their own image and they love and peer into their own image rather than peering into the law of liberty because that law will change them and will necessitate their action. They sit in spires of superiority week in and we week out hearing messages of the goodness of our God and the grace displayed in his gospel and yet make no effort to actually let that impact any part of the way that they live. They make no effort to live out what they've heard. They make no effort to apply the text in a way that they can grab onto it and run with it and proclaim it to the world. Brothers and sisters, we must be wary of being hearers only. May it never be said of RBC or of us sitting here that we sit here week in and week out and fail to let the word of God press upon us the full weight of his glory. Or fail to let the word of God weigh in on our marriages. Or fail to let the word of God weigh in on our child rearing. Or fail to let the word of God weigh in on our evangelism or our uh, interactions in the workplace. Or our search for a spouse on our our arguments that we have with our current spouse, on our grief over the loss of a loved one, on our failure or longevity of the church of RBC here in Nacogdoches. It may never be said of us that we don't let the word of God have an effectual impact on what we're doing. 
J.C. Ryle says that the gospel, which we possess, must not be given, uh, was not given only to be admired, talked of, professed, but practiced. It was not meant merely to reside in our intellect and memories and tongues, but to be seen in our lives. Susanna Wesley, the mother of uh, John and Charles Wesley, uh, says it even simpler. There are two things to do about the gospel. Believe it and behave it. That's the only two things that you need to do about the gospel. The work of salvation is done. There are only two things to do as a result of the gospel. Believe it, behave it. James calls those who are hearers and hearers only, he calls them self-deceived. You know the thing about being self-deceived is that you don't know you're, you're deceived unless other people tell you that you might be. Self-deception continually works and the word of God comes and this truth that he is using to bring us forth by his own will that we might be first fruits of his creation, it comes and it confronts us in that, in that self-deception. And it is the first thing that truly allows us to realize, I don't know that I'm living what I say that I love. Verse 23, like any preacher would, James then uses illustrious language to uh, further communicate the importance of obeying God's word. Contrasted against the doer of the word in verse uh, 25, who looks into the perfect law, in verse 23 and 24, James describes the hearer only as one who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and then immediately forgets, as he walks away, immediately forgets what he looks like. The hearer only is a man who sees his natural face, his natural state before God, his natural existence as one that is sinful and rebellious against God and in need of forgiveness and redemption. Yet, when he walks away, he forgets all of it and just does what he wants. He walks away unchanged, unscathed. Rather, he forgets what he has seen and he moves on with his day. He just continues, he goes about trudging through your life as if the word of God hasn't shown and revealed him exactly who he is. When the word of God truly meets a person, it comes first as an affront to them, an affront to their own self, then as a solution to their problem, which inevitably is, is themselves, right? Their problem is them, and the solution is God and Christ and his display in the gospel. It will first show them of the folly of their own ways and call them to repent and believe in the gospel, which will ultimately save them. If the, that is you here this morning, please do so. If you can hear a text and walk away unchanged, consider yourself for a moment. Don't look into the mirror, see what is there, and then walk away as if it doesn't matter. Peer into the law of liberty. Repent and believe in the hope of the gospel, but don't be a hearer only. Obey, do the word. James shows us the fruit and the result of a hearer contrasted with that of a doer. Once again, this whole text is a giant, and indeed my sermon is a giant contrast. This would be a, a softball of a question in our inductive studies in our Tuesday night Bible studies, if we were still doing inductive Bible studies this week. But it's sort of, it's, it's obvious. He's painting these two people, and throughout, he's showing us, look, this is what one is, and this is what the other is. One is forgetting who God is, and they're here only, and the other is doing what God says, remembering to focus their attention on him. And he does it again here when he states that while a hearer will be blessed in his doing of the word, I'm sorry, uh, a doer will, will be blessed in the, the doing of the word. The hearer will immediately forget what he sees. 
Those who do not allow the gospel truth, the implanted word, to be buried deep into their hearts, that they might glorify God and enjoy him forever, forever, but rather engage with the word of God only on a superficial level and will not take any of his commands into their own life, they will walk away from the word unscathed and unaffected with no hope of ever seeing the gospel for what it truly is, the only means of life in this world full of darkness. While those that obey the word will be, bl- be blessed in their doing of it. So, a couple comments in closing. We must ask ourselves, are we those who are unaffected by the word, who are sermon-proofed, who are word-hardened? Or are we the ones that submit our entire lives to the authority that is found in God's word and the implanted word that has saved us. Regardless of our answer, it, it, sh- it will create worship in us. How you answer that question will affect your worship. It will affect where your religion is directed. Either worship God by self-denial and loving devotion or worship self by self, self-deception. Either way, we are undoubtedly religious as James calls us to. In verse 26, James says, uh, <laughs> he basically tells us, look, if you think that you're religious and yet you can't control your tongue and you're, you're already getting the words out, yes, I know which one I am. I know, I know, move on. If that's really us and we're already quick to speak and not quick to hear, if we're slow to hear, and he is saying, stop your talking for a moment and consider God. He's saying, evaluate yourself and put off filthy, rampant wickedness and trust in Christ and be unstained from the world. Ask yourself this, before before a word of counsel leaves the the mouth of a pastor or your friend or spouse, are you already saying, yeah, I know that? That is being a doer. I'm sorry, that is not being a doer. That is being a hearer only. That is not one who is quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to grow angry. According to James, that person's religion is worthless. That's what he says. I don't say it. James says it. He says here, if anyone thinks that he he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I want to touch on an unbridled tongue, but there's going to be a whole sermon on that later on in, in the text. So I'm going to let Wes joyfully present that b- b- for us this morning. But in closing, I want to ask just a few, a few questions. Are we content with being hearers only? Are we striving to be doers of the word? Are we failing? Are we imperfect and yet still striving to glorify God in all that we do? Because I'll tell you, hearers only have huge problems ahead of them. Hearers only are not going to be able to deal with it when their child seems to be walking away from the faith. It's going to be hard. That word ain't planted too far deep down. It's going to be a tough thing. The thorns and the thistles are going to come. It's going to snuff out whatever's there. Hearers only are never going to see their loved ones come to faith in Christ by the sharing of his gospel. They're not going to be a part of what God is doing in the midst of their family. Here's only are never going to be able to shake the habitual sin that has been plaguing them for years. Being hearers only will guarantee that this church will fail, that the church will fail. The RBC, and hear me clearly, being hearers only will, will guarantee that this church will fail. Now, God in his providence has decided to to put us here for however long he has numbered our days here in Nacogdoches. 
but his word also is binding on us that we be doers of the word and not hearers only. Most certainly there are blessings in doing the word, but there's also great warning in being a hearer only. We must ask ourselves which portrait we see ourselves in. How much of the word of God are we going to put on our plate and consume? Are we going to pass it by or are we going to double down on it? How much of it will we let fuel us for our God-glorifying duty in this world? James is all about action. Even going so far at times to say faith is, apart from works, is dead. That we are not justified by faith, but by works. And I'm glad we switched that text around. Now Wes gets to joyfully present that to us as well. But, yeah, do that. But I don't want that to take away from the fact that we have a duty here. Like we, we have responsibilities. We have things that God has called us to. The grace of God that saves must sanctify. And we are sanctified by the word of God and the working of his spirit through that word. So are we content with letting ourselves be self-deceived in our worthless religion? Or are we starved for something more? Now, brothers and sisters, I said at the outset, this may be difficult and we might want to pass this passage up. I'm preaching to myself more than I'm preaching to you guys about being a hearer, about not being a hearer only and being a doer of the word. So let's do the word together. Let's sing the word together and declare exactly that, that the only reason that we can walk in truth and that we can walk away from filthy, rampant wickedness and put on the implanted word that we've received by meekness is by the blood of Jesus that is paid for our sins. So let's pray and then we'll stand and sing that together. God, we love you and we're grateful that you've saved sinners like us, that while we were still enemies, Christ, you died for us. Lord, if, if there's anything that's unclear, if there's anything that is confusing or anything that is even false, I pray that your spirit and that your peace would surpass understanding, that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and that you would allow your word to be effectual in our hearts. And allow us, God, not to be hearers only, taking the, the word and then walking out the door and dropping it by the wayside, but actually grabbing onto it and walking with it as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. May you, God, empower us to be doers. May we focus our attention on you and off of self. May we not be self-deceived, but may we be self-denying in our efforts to glorify God to the end of our days. And may we indeed enjoy you forever. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand and sing with us?